Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, we're going to read verses 47 through 62. This is the word of God. Please give it your full attention. While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval, about an hour, Still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When my family and I were living in Kansas City many years ago and our children were young, Suzanne and I were very close friends with a couple in our church who had children about the same ages of ours. And so our children were good friends and we were good friends as parents. We spent a lot of time with that family. And even after we moved back to Pennsylvania, we would always plan to spend one week every summer camping with that family so that we could renew and strengthen the friendship. They, this family that we met in Kansas City was the quintessential, deeply committed Christian family. They served the church in many ways. They were there every time there was an event at the church. They loved discussing the deep things of biblical interpretation and doctrinal study. And they homeschooled their children and taught them the scriptures well. But then, after we had moved back to Pennsylvania and after we had known them for about a decade... The husband called me one day in tears and said that his wife had left him. We later found out that not only had she left him and her family, but she had left the church, she had left Christ, she had renounced Christianity, she had rekindled a relationship with an old boyfriend and had committed herself to what we had then called New Age spirituality. This was deeply upsetting to Suzanne and I and to our kids. Not only because we lost a good friend, and not only because of the hurt and the damage it did to her family, 
but it also challenged our theology. How can someone appear to be born again and follow Jesus for a significant period of time and then one day just walk away and reject him? Last week, when we were looking at Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and chiding his disciples because they weren't praying when they should have been, remember his last words to his disciples right before he is arrested here in this passage, his last words were this, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And if you're with us last week, we asked that question, what temptation is he referring to specifically? And we said that likely in this context, the temptation was in the face of the force of darkness, in the face of the hostility, the murderous hostility of the Jewish leadership against Jesus, that they would resist the temptation to walk away from him, that they would resist the temptation to give up Christ in order to save their earthly life or their earthly status. And that's a temptation that every Christian faces. When times get hard, when you suffer, especially when you face the strong, luring temptations of this world or the hostility of this world, it's always tempting to say, is it really worth it to follow Christ? Today we're going to look at two of Jesus' disciples, Judas and Peter. And we're going to see that both of these disciples turned away from Jesus. Both of them, in the face of the darkness and hostility of the world's opposition to Christ, both of them denied and turned away from Jesus. And then we'll talk about what's the difference between the two. Let's first of all look at the disillusioned disciple. That was Judas. Jesus here finishes his gut-wrenching prayers in the Garden of Eden as he wrestled with his father's will that he go to the cross to die as a propitiation, as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. As he is finishing his prayers and giving this last instruction to telling his disciples to pray and be on guard against the temptation to depart from him, a large crowd of men come into the garden. They're carrying torches and swords and clubs. From later in the passage and from the other Gospels, we know that at the front of that mob were the officers of the temple, the temple policemen who carried out the will of the Jewish chief priests, the priesthood. Also, there were there, we know from the other Gospels, some Roman soldiers who had come along to strengthen their numbers. And then behind them were the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. The fact that they are heavily armed showed what they expected when they found Jesus and his disciples. They expected armed resistance. They expected to need greater force to to arrest Jesus and take him into, into custody. But Jesus exposes the injustice of what they are doing in arresting him. He says in verses 52 and 53, he says, basically, why are you treating me as though I'm a dangerous criminal? He says, I was teaching peacefully, quietly, every day in the temple courts. And you never laid a hand on me. You didn't arrest me there in the daylight. Why have you come here under the cover of darkness in the middle of the night 
to arrest me? And the answer is, as we know, as the rest of the trial plays out, they had no evidence. They were doing the work of the kingdom of darkness. Jesus then reveals in that moment what's really happening from God's perspective. He says, but this is your hour, the power of darkness. This is the hour for darkness to rejoice, for darkness to gloat. This is the hour of darkness seeming victory in the ages-long battle between the kingdom of light, the God of light, the God of truth, the God of holiness, the God of life, in his war, which happened even before creation, between the God of light and the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness and the prince of darkness, Satan himself. Darkness in scripture always represents lies and sin and death. And this war between light and darkness has always been going on behind the scenes. Right now, today, it's happening behind the scenes. When you look at world events, when you look at community events, when you look at what's going on in your family and among your friends, this war between light and darkness continues. And Jesus says, this is your hour, darkness. This is your seeming victory. Jesus described that conflict in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. He says there, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. And everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Have you ever noticed that most crimes and really sin in general, if you were to measure how, many, how often do sins and crimes happen during the day in the light and which ones happen in the night in the darkness, the vast majority of the works of darkness are done under the cover of darkness, in literal darkness. Someone once pointed out to me that those businesses that cater to our sinful appetites, things like porn shops and strip clubs and casinos, do you ever notice they don't put windows in their buildings to keep the light out? Now again, we're talking about light as a metaphor for darkness and evil, but that's what the characteristic of the kingdom of darkness is, is deception and hiding and Jesus says, this is the hour of darkness. This is when Satan's kingdom is going to appear to win. But notice he says it's an hour. Not a day, not a week, not a month, not a year, not a century. This is the hour for darkness to appear to win. It's limited by the sovereign plan of God. And it would soon end. And the kingdom of light would win through Christ death and resurrection but we see at this point that the darkness had already won over one of Jesus disciples because the mob was led by Judas could you imagine how the other disciples what they thought remember at the last supper at the in the upper room they're saying who you me they didn't know who was going to betray Jesus and there's Judas leading the mob to come and arrest him 
Just a few hours earlier, they had been having fellowship with him around the table, celebrating the Passover. So that the soldiers would know in that dark garden who was Christ, who was Jesus, Judas worked out a prearranged signal for, so they would know which one to arrest. And he said, I'll go over and I'll greet Jesus. I'll give him a kiss on the cheek. Now, kissing on the cheek is not a normal greeting in our culture, but in that culture, that was the normal way to greet somebody. It was like a handshake or a hug. Matter of fact, in many parts of the world, it's still very common to greet one another with a kiss on the cheek. I remember uh, about uh, 15 years ago, I went on a missions trip to Turkey. And during the months of training leading up to that trip to Turkey, one of the things they told us to expect was that when we meet people in Turkey, they were going to kiss us on each cheek. And if you know how non-demonstrative I am and how much of an introvert I am, I was terrified of all the things I had to be afraid of, terrorists and all kinds of things we had to be afraid of on that trip. It was the people coming up and kissing me on each cheek that scared me the most. But one thing that's different, in many of those cultures in the Middle East today, it is more like a handshake. But back then, it, it meant more than a handshake. Back then, it communicated respect and affection and even love for the person that you greet. You didn't kiss everyone on the cheek, just those that you loved and respected and honored. And so Jesus exposes Judas's hypocrisy. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? The most extreme and most cruel act of hypocrisy in history was Judas kissing the cheek of Jesus so that he could be identified to be arrested and crucified. But it raises that same question we started with this morning. How could one of the 12 who lived with Jesus day in and day out for three years, who listened to his divine wisdom and all of his teaching, who observed his perfect life and his compassion for others, who witnessed all of his incredible miracles, how could that disciple end up siding with the enemies of Christ, giving himself over to the forces of darkness and helping them to kill Jesus? Well, part of the explanation is back in verse 3. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 22, in verse 3, it says there, before Judas went to, be, to contact the Jewish leadership in order to betray Jesus, it says, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Yes, Judas had become possessed by Satan, and Satan used him as an instrument to accomplish what Satan wanted to do. But don't ever think that Satan was some kind of a robot who was being controlled by this spiritual being. He chose the ways of darkness. He chose to do Satan's will for his own selfish purposes. He wasn't forced. He chose the darkness. Now, we've talked before, maybe he was motivated by greed because there are some incidents that happened during the ministry of Christ that would make you think that, that Judas was greedy, he was stealing from the money bag, he was, he was uh, shown to be un untrustworthy with money. So it might have been greed, and he was paid 30 pieces of silver in order to betray Jesus, but we know that 30 pieces of silver in that time was really not that much money. So it couldn't have been money that primarily drove him to betray Jesus. So it leaves us to wonder, and Scripture isn't entirely clear about his motivation, but 
commentators basically come down to either two possibilities. Why did Judas choose the darkness and betray Christ? One possibility is that he was totally disillusioned. That he, because he was greedy, because he was materialistic, because he was worldly and had worldly values, he wanted a Messiah that was going to set up this great earthly kingdom and make the people of Israel, the, restore Israel and to be the, the, the nation that represents the kingdom of God, defeat all of Israel's enemies and drive out the Romans. Maybe that was what he really thought. And so he came to realize that as Jesus didn't seem to care about wealth, didn't seem to care about earthly authority and power, maybe he just became disillusioned and ended up agreeing with the Jewish leadership that this is not the true Christ. This is a false Christ. He must be stopped. Maybe that's what his motivation was. Or the other possibility is, is that he wanted to force Jesus' hand. He wanted to betray him to the Jewish leadership so that they would arrest him in hopes that finally this earthly revolt would happen, that somehow Jesus and his disciples would do what he wants them to do to establish this worldly materialistic kingdom. Either way, bottom line, he rejected the true Christ. The true Christ is not the Christ he wanted to follow. He was driven by the desires and treasures and values of this world, and so he rejected Christ and his gospel. That's one of the two disciples who betrayed Jesus. The other disciple was the self-confident disciple. As you look at how the other disciples responded, you see that they're stunned by what's happening as this mob arrests Jesus. They don't know what to do. One of them remembers, as we saw last week, that during the Last Supper, Jesus had told his disciples that in order to carry out their mission, they were going to face a lot more hostility in the future, so they needed to take a money bag, take a knapsack, and buy a sword you know, be prepared for self-defense because I'm sending you out into a world that's hostile to you and your message. Well, that one disciple says, well, maybe now's the time. Maybe that's what Jesus meant. We should have a sword with us now so that we can keep him from being arrested. And before Jesus could answer the question, should we pull out our swords, one of them did. And he used his sword to strike at the servant of the high priest. And he cut off his ear. I don't know if that means he's a bad shot or he just mean to wing him. I don't know. But he, uh, he cut off the servant's ear. We know that that was Peter. The other gospels, Peter, Luke doesn't tell us, but the other gospels tell us it was Peter. And that fits his impulsive, bombastic nature that we learn about as we read the gospels. But Jesus rebukes Peter. There's no more of this. Permit this arrest to happen. No more of this. Matthew says that Jesus also said, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Or as John adds to his comments, John says that he said, shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? The cup of wrath. Jesus would later say when he stood before Pilate and the Roman authorities, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. 
The kingdom of light is not like the kingdoms of this world. It doesn't operate by the same principles. It doesn't worship the same gods as the kingdoms of this world. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. But Peter is still struggling to understand this. And he sees the arrest of Jesus as being detrimental to the purposes of the kingdom of light, this spiritual kingdom that he doesn't yet understand. And Peter's showing himself again to be bold and impulsive. But what I want you to notice as you look at the life of Peter, not just here, but throughout the course of the Gospels, is that his boldness, his confidence, his aggressiveness was based in pride. It was based in the flesh, not in the spirit. Peter was one who tended to be confident based in his own strength and his own abilities and his own understanding of the situation. Peter was the one disciple who jumped out of the boat to walk on the water when Jesus walked on the water to the boat. But remember, that bold confidence died out quickly when he started to sink because he didn't fully trust in Jesus. It was Peter, when Jesus told the disciples that one of them was going to betray him, it was Peter who said, though they all fall away, even if all these other disciples turn away from you and desert you, he says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And he then later says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. But where did he base his confidence? Not in the sustaining spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. He based his confidence in his own ability, his own strength, his own intellect. So Peter tries to stop the arrest. He tries to stop the trial. He stops, tries to stop the crucifixion because he's living, thinking in the flesh, not in the spirit. Many of the things that we do, that we do for Christ, we do in the flesh. I think that's one of the keys to our sanctification, to growing closer to the Lord, is learning what it means to trust in him for everything in life. But so it's just the normal Christian life that so much of the time we trust part of the time in the flesh and part of the time in the spirit. But we must learn, like Peter needed to learn, to not trust in the flesh at all, but to always trust in the spirit. J.C. Ryle once said this, he said, to suffer patiently for Christ is far more difficult than to work actively for him. Crusaders will always be found more numerous than martyrs. All the disciples fled after the arrest. But Peter followed him. Why did Peter follow him? Peter loved him. Peter felt, maybe I can still do something to stop this travesty, this injustice. Maybe I can save the kingdom of light here on earth by stopping what's happening here. And Jesus was taken to the high priest's house, which was a very large house. It had a courtyard, and Peter was able to get into the courtyard. We know from another gospel it's because one of the other disciples knew the high priest and was able to get him in. So he goes into the courtyard... And there he is, surrounded by enemies of Christ, the servants of the high priest, the servants of the members of the Sanhedrin, soldiers and temple policemen, surrounded by the darkness of the world that was carrying out this arrest and crucifixion. And then he was recognized. 
in the light of the fire in the middle of the courtyard, he's recognized. And then he's recognized again. In both times, he says, I don't know the man. I don't know Jesus. I'm not a follower. And then with increasing vehemence, the third time he's recognized, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I have nothing to do with this man. One of the other gospels says that on that third denial, he actually called, he, he, he made oaths and called down curses upon himself. I don't know what curses he said, but it must have been something like, may God strike me dead if I'm lying to you when I say that I don't know Jesus. He loved Jesus, but he didn't trust Jesus in the face of the full onslaught of the dark kingdom of darkness. And so he betrayed him by saying he didn't know him. What motivated Peter <clears throat> to betray and deny Christ? Well, I think it was rooted in that pride, that pride that we see over and over again in the course of the Gospels. Even when he did good things, like he was the first disciple to confess Christ to be the Messiah. He was the disciple who said, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of life. Still, a lot of that was motivated by pride. And when you are driven by pride, you fear other human beings. Because if it's pride that is the driving force in your life, then your reputation is the most important thing in your life. You want other people to think well of you. You want glory from other people. And what that means is other people can control you. And that's what's happening here. He was in the midst of a bunch of the enemies of Christ. And for fear to try to save his own life, he denies Christ. Jesus had taught his followers that in order to follow him, they needed to take up their cross and follow him. They needed to die to self and trust in him. But Peter wasn't there yet. At the moment of his third denial, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the prophecy that Jesus had just given a few hours earlier, that before the rooster crowed, he would deny him three times. But even more, there's that poignant moment where it says that Jesus must have been leaving the house or going from one part of the house to another. He was able to see Peter, and at the moment that he denied him the third time, it says Peter looked over and Jesus was looking right at him. And Peter was crushed by his shame. Maybe something else that Jesus had taught months earlier came to mind. Back in chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, Jesus said, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And so Peter wept bitterly. I just want you to see that both Judas and Peter denied Christ. Both Judas and Peter betrayed Christ and gave themselves over to the forces of darkness. And both were, were filled with deep sorrow and regret. Both of them were devastated by their actions. Scriptures tell us that Judas took the 30 pieces of silver back to the chief priests and he threw it back on the floor, said, I don't want it, and he went out and in his despair he killed himself. But Peter was restored by Christ in that beautiful chapter 21 of John's Gospel. Restored to a right relationship with Christ, restored to ministry, he became the leader of the apostles and the leader of the early church. What was the difference? 
What was the difference between Judas and Peter? The difference wasn't in the greatness of their sin. They both committed the same basic great sin. The difference wasn't in their despair and sorrow and grief and shame over what they did. They both felt that way. Why did Peter get restored and Judas ended up in self-destruction? Why was Judas called the son of perdition or the son of destruction, whereas Peter became a great leader in the church? The difference between them is the sovereign grace of God. It's that simple. Judas was never truly converted. We know because he died still rejecting Christ. He died in unbelief. Therefore, his heart was spiritually dead. But Peter loved Christ because his heart had been made alive by the sovereign grace of God. His stone heart had been replaced with a living heart. You see, it's not despair, depression, that proves whether you are born again or not. Because many believers go through despair and depression. Sometimes for physical causes, sometimes for emotional causes, sometimes for circumstantial causes. Both Peter and Judas despaired. But Peter loved Christ because Christ had changed his heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul talks about the difference between Peter's sorrow and grief and regret and Judas's sorrow and grief and regret. He's not specifically speaking about these two disciples, but he talks about the difference between the way that they responded to their sin. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, for, the, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And there you have the difference between Judas and Peter. Peter, because of his regenerate heart, his born-again heart, he responded to his grief and conviction over his sin by repenting. He was led by the Holy Spirit to Christ to be forgiven, whereas Judas was led by his sorrow and despair into self-destruction. The evidence of a new heart is that sin produces confession, repentance, turning to God for forgiveness and restoration. The evidence of a spiritually dead heart is that sin will lead you to reject Christ, away from God, to a place of worldly hope temporarily, but ultimately despair. Jesus had told his disciples that some of his followers were not going to continue to follow him. Throughout the course of his ministry, we saw that happen. After he fed the 5,000 with the miraculous five loaves and two fish, it says that after he said, went on and taught them what he really meant, that he was the bread of life, it said many of his followers departed from him. We saw this throughout his ministry. We see it today. We see people like our friend from Kansas City, who seem to walk with Christ for a long period of time, but then they turn away. The only way we can understand is what Jesus taught us in the parable of the sower. He said that when we go out to sow the seed of the gospel, the good news about his death and resurrection and, and life in him, as we go out to spread that message and sow the seed, some of that seed's going to fall on hard soil. In other words, hardened hearts. And he says in the, in the parable that the, the birds come and eat the seed. In other words, the, the seed doesn't, 
penetrate the hardened heart at all. That's a lot of people who never respond to the gospel. And then he'll talk about in the fourth type of soil, there are those that have a prepared soil. Their heart is like prepared soil. And when the seed is sown in that good soil, it grows roots and it bears fruit and many fold. But then he talked about the two kinds of soil in between. The kind where there was some soil, but there were many rocks, there were thorns, there were weeds that choked out, that kept the seed. The seed responds quickly in a positive way, but because it has no root, it dies. And Jesus there is describing the kind of person we're talking about, like Judas, who appeared to genuinely follow Christ, but ultimately fell away. He had no root by the grace of, of the Holy Spirit in his life. Therefore, he could not ultimately repent and believe. Matthew 7, Jesus said, and you can easily think of his own disciples when he said this, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, of course, we don't know that anybody is lost until they die in unbelief. As long as you are breathing and able to respond to the offer of the gospel, there is still the hope of salvation. But if you die in unbelief, there is no hope. And that's where Judas ended his life. But I just want to point out that before they met Jesus, Peter wasn't a wiser or a better person than Judas. Before they met Jesus, Peter was not more spiritually sensitive or discerning or intuitive than Judas. They were both dead spiritually. But Jesus made the heart of Peter alive by his grace. And this is where we see, here's the definitive statement on the difference between Judas and Peter in light of their great, great sin is in verses 31 and 32 of chapter 22. It says, Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, when, not if, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see, Peter had Jesus as his great high priest to have his blood atone for his sin and for Jesus to intercede before him, before the Father. Judas trusted in himself and in the ways of this world, never truly had faith in Christ, and so he ended up in the same condition as the false teachers that John talks about in 1 John 2, verse 19. He says about the first, these false teachers in the early church, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. All of this leads me to ask you just one final question. Is your heart more like Peter's or like Judas' heart? You may be coming to church every Sunday. You may be reading your Bible. You may be praying. You may be even sharing your faith. But are you doing it because you truly love Jesus and more and more pertinent to this lesson today, how do you respond to the sin in your life? Does the sin drive you to the foot of the cross? Does it drive you to Jesus to confess your sin that you might be forgiven 
and find hope and eternal life in him? Or does your sin drive you away from Christ, away from God, into the arms of the world, into the darkness, and away from the light? The power of darkness is great, but John also says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Because every day, Jesus says about you, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And Jesus has never had a prayer answered with a no. Except when he said, is there any other way than for me to go to the cross? In his human nature, he wanted to avoid, but in his divine nature, he went to the cross to pay for your sin that you might be saved. At the end of his life, I want to just end by reading a passage of scripture from one of Peter's epistles. Peter wrote this near the end of his life. And I've read it many times, but until this week, I had never read it in conjunction with studying his denials, his three denials of Christ and his great sorrow and regret over his sin and thinking about how Jesus restored him. I want you to think about that as I read this familiar passage from 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, that is our confidence as we still live as sinners facing the forces of darkness and temptation every day of our lives. Our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is not in the flesh. Our confidence is in our crucified and risen Savior who will always restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He will not let our faith fail. That is our confidence today, Lord. I pray that everyone who's here to worship will share in that confidence that comes from your sovereign grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.